VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I think too many of us got used to this, like, just-in-time everything just in time fundraising just in time supply chains just just in time is great as long as you have a stockpile to ride out like if you're building a model that's based on a normal distribution curve it's probably going to turn out ugly for you at some point hello and welcome to danny in the valley we are back for another week how is everyone doing Uh, i hope well out here in oakland we sally forth as bob marley says Sun is shining, weather is sweet, so I'm not going to complain. And why would I? Anyhow, I am uh, I'm employed, which is not to be underestimated these days. And I get to do this podcast every week where we, I get to meet interesting people doing interesting stuff. And this week's guest falls firmly in that category. Ryan Peterson is the founder of Flexport, which is a San Francisco-based freight forwarding company. Now, if you don't know what that means, freight forwarding, uh, that's all right. Most people don't. I know about it from my previous job covering resources and energy and all the kind of stuff that gets moved around the world. But basically, freight forwarders make sure the stuff gets from one port to another, kind of handling all the nitty-gritty of global trade. And Flexport is a startup. They have put a whole layer of software into it and kind of try to make it as easy and kind of pain-free as possible. That's the idea anyway. And I want to talk to Peterson for a few reasons. For one, I had heard through the grapevine that he had gotten very heavily involved in the great kind of global PPE scramble of a couple months back, which now feels like years ago. But I did want to talk to him just to understand what his role was there, what he saw, kind of how it all went down. And of course, how Arnold Schwarzenegger got involved, because he did. And no, He didn't just say, I'll be masked. (laughs) I had to, you know. Anyhow, Peterson has a really fascinating background. He's started a couple companies before this one. And with Flexport, he has raised a boatload of money. A billion dollars in his last round. When everybody was telling him to raise way, way less. Now, that decision, of course, now looks genius didn't know there was a pandemic coming, but we can talk about his reasons and and how that all worked. In other words, we have a lot to cover. So without further ado, I give you Ryan Peterson, founder of Flexport. Enjoy. Well, first of all, thanks for taking the time. How's life in the pandemic? Because you're in an interesting part of the economy. And I imagine in many ways, you're kind of like a canary in the coal mine 
of kind of when things start changing for better or for worse. I'd love to get perspective on kind of how you've seen this develop and play out. I often call logistics where a, a backstage pass to the world economy, you get to see what's really happening and actually get to meet a lot of the people who are behind all the companies that are doing stuff too. So it's, it, I mean, it's a really exciting place to work. We have been kind of a canary in the coal mine and yet also trying not to overreact to the things that we see because we're kind of a limited sample. So Flexport now runs about 1% of US container trade. And yet it's not an, a 1% random sample. It's sort of like the 1% of companies that we're working with, which are tend to be more modern companies, more e-commerce businesses, of course, more global businesses by definition. But I'm giving up on predicting the future to some degree. Probably a safe position to take. My finance team doesn't like it when I joke about it because I learned that they actually literally stopped forecasting for a couple of weeks. I was like, no, I didn't mean that literally. <laughs> Keep forecasting. But yeah, so we have... Um, for example, when, when COVID first hit back in China, we we saw the shutdown of pretty much all the factories and no containers departing from China for a five or six week period, which is really unprecedented. Never seen that mm. kind of a shutdown. And yet the stock market was still at an all time high. And I was you know looking at this going, wait a minute, how can this be? And then now um, our business is doing great and things have come back, you know, and our customers are shipping a lot. Now you see some customers are really booming. You have some e-commerce brands that are really doing great. And then some that are struggling because they're more retail oriented, but on the whole business has come back. And uh, again, I don't know how to predict the future because that's not, it doesn't add up to me with so many people out of work and so many people suffering. Right. So. Yeah. So things have picked up, but is that, is that kind of even across the board or is it more kind of Chinese suppliers into certain parts of America or certain parts of Europe or parts of the world where, you know, is there, is it kind of lumpy or is it just kind of things died for a while and now they've come back? Well, I, I can give you two pictures. One is like our own data with our own customer base, which has really come back quite strong and, and growth is there. We're, we're beating our forecasts and stuff and things that I, again, I wouldn't have predicted. Whereas in the market, the broader market of global trade and Asia to the US, Asia to Europe, you're looking like a 10% decline in volume right now. Right. So trade is, I don't want to paint this rosy picture. Oh, the economy is booming. And that's why I sort of say like, it's hard to believe your own data when, when you're such a small sample and sort of in a fast growing business. But uh, yeah, definitely really chaotic times in, and logistics is, um, we are the backstage pass. We're also sort of the circulatory system for all of these other companies for how they operate. And you got to be able to bring some degree of agility when there's this kind of chaos there's this much change in the market, factories shutting down. One thing that people don't realize, 50% of air cargo flies in the belly of a passenger plane. And all, yeah. the, all these passenger planes not flying has created lots of disruption and chaos for people trying to ship products by air. Um, so it's definitely put us, to, you know, put us to the test of like, can we actually make sure we're supporting these businesses? And I've been proud of us to grow through that. So for like that air cargo thing, that one's really interesting because in, in Europe in the last few days, Ryanair, they're saying, I think it was the f three months through June last year, they flew 42 million passengers or something. And then three months through June this year, they flew like 500,000. Wow. So like a 99% drop. So how do you deal with that if like, as you say, no planes are flying or are you just filling 
passenger planes with a bunch of cargo and just flying them empty? I mean, how does that work? Well, so there are cargo planes out there and those are still mostly flying. Um, they've been having trouble getting pilots and pilots who are, you know, when there's like a quarantine and all of a sudden you have to figure out how do we get pilots to not get stuck for two weeks every time they enter a country. So you're, it's created a lot of chaos, but cargo planes are still about 50% of the volume and those are flying. So it's just led to a real spike in the price and, and a capacity surge. Where you saw this hit the worst and the hardest was with PPE. I mean, it's kind of the worst case scenario. You had just at the moment you lose half of your capacity to fly stuff. The world has this intense need for personal protective equipment to be flown. And there is where we had to get really creative. And we actually went and leased a whole bunch of passenger planes that were grounded and put them back in the air and flew them to China. And like, I'm really proud of our team. We stuffed the chairs full of boxes in the upper deck. We didn't get permission fast enough to remove the seats from the FAA. So we just said, Esra, just throw them on top and buckle them in with seatbelts and netting and stuff. But that's that's pretty exceptional just for PPE. I'm just yeah, I'm just thinking about that. So what these are what like 747s or passenger planes? Triple seven mostly. Triple seven. Seven eight seven as well. Where I would be sitting in you know 14B or something. I'd probably be further back. Call it 35B, middle seat as usual. That would be just stacked with boxes, and you just strap that in, and that's the whole cabin as well as below. The whole cabin plus the below. Yeah, I'll send you some pictures. We, they're on our social media too. It was, it was pretty crazy. Um, and I was really proud of us because the first couple of flights, we didn't do that. We just leased passenger planes and said, oh, we'll just, the belly still holds quite a bit of cargo, mm. you know, where the luggage goes and other cargo. But then after a while, we're like, wait a minute, all these seats are empty. Why don't we put boxes up there too? Um, and we're managed to probably almost double the capacity of a plane with mass. And again, I just think it's like one of these things that where we've stood apart a little bit, it's like, that's not technology. That's just like, we're a young company that still cares a lot and is creative and says, Hey, wait, we can do this. Like, let's just throw some boxes and call up United Airlines president and tell them your planes are needed. You know, we got to put right. those things in the air and they were super down to help us and help the world. Not, not us per se, but help the world. And they, they participated actively as, as a couple other airlines. Uh, we've talked to a fair few people over the last couple months about PPE. How did you guys get involved? Um, if you could kind of tell that story, because I think it's really interesting. It's one of those things where I just looked and see a problem. And I, I found out about the problem originally from my neighbor who's on the um, board of supervisors, which is what we call our city council here in San Francisco. And I talked to her, like, I think we were walking dogs past each other. And I was like, just checking in like, hey, does the city have enough masks and stuff? And she was like, no, we really have a problem. And for me, you know, sourcing products in China is something I've done for 20 years and doing logistics out of there is something where that's what we do all day. And so I was like, well, how we could do this. We could probably help with this. And we have flexport.org, which is full time. That's what we're set up to do is humanitarian relief logistics for various causes. Usually it's like exporting medical supplies from the US to Africa or Latin America and other parts of the world uh, for disasters, hurricanes, whatever. Um, now, all of a sudden, this is the first time we actually imported products through flexport.org. But we were able to go with one of our nonprofit partners. And within 48 hours, we made a delivery of like 70,000 masks to uh, City Hall, well, to the to their receiving center for the SF General Hospital. So we immediately got some credibility with the city and that kind of kicked all of us into high gear. It got us a bit of a profile. And next thing you know, we had raised Paul Graham, who's the first investor in Flexport. He's the founder of Y Combinator. He 
he's a friend of mine. And I told him what we we're doing. He's like, if I gave you a million dollars, could you do more of that? And I was like, yeah, definitely. So he donated super generous, donated a million bucks to flexport.org. Wow. And from there, it was like off to the races. We got Edward Norton sponsored a big GoFundMe campaign. Arnold Schwarzenegger came in, a bunch of other amazing, generous philanthropists came in and, and funded it. And so what has that been able to do in terms of deliveries and getting PPE? Because it feels like, and I don't know if this is true, you'll have a better sense of that than me, but it feels like that PPE crunch that we had for the first, I don't know, six weeks, two months of the pandemic, that feels like it's alleviated a bit. Uh, yeah, for the moment, you know, and we're all we're all kind of a little horrified to, to, to rest and, and just take a break because we assume that there's going to be more. What we did with it was, well, the fund itself, we raised $7 million. I think it was seven, seven and change from a lot of it was crowdfunded. We got like 20, more than 20,000 donors that kicked in, including a lot of Flexport employees, but a couple of big name, big name donors. And that fund of $7 million, we used it to pay for logistics for anyone else who was shipping, uh, shipping PPE that was either donated or sold at cost or some kind of philanthropic right. philanthropic like hospitals themselves that were going out to source. So we were able to one pay for the logistics, but two provide our logistics, like collaboration tools, software, people, expertise, make it easy for them during the rush, during that initial peak, what you saw was people who had never really shipped anything before try to ship like the hardest thing, like regulated yeah. medical supplies. And so they really, we, I think we were able to do as much good from like our expertise and our platform as from the, from the money. We delivered with the $7 million and change of donated logistics services, we were able to pay, deliver $94 million. I should check these. I think it was, we, I know we shipped a total of 200 million units of PPE. I mean, it was just like tons of money. How you calculate the yeah. dollars is like, is it the wholesale price, the retail, whatever, but uh, millions and millions of units that we delivered to the front lines on five continents, a lot of it to to NHS in the UK. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys just did, recently did a big shipment, right? Yeah, we, we're, we're still going. That's why I say we're not done at all. Um, but we just did a big shipment with uh, 365 Healthcare to the NHS. We've done in the Netherlands, we partnered with a company called Cool Blue. And did a whole bunch there with their government, KLM Airlines to the Netherlands. But we've done quite a bit with you at uh, NHS. I think the last couple of weeks, it was 16.5 tons of PPE that we delivered to the NHS. Wow. And, and like now what's happened is during the initial six to eight weeks, every hospital, every medical system in the world was like, we need stuff. And they went out and tried to get as much as they can. And they stockpiled. But if COVID spikes again and they start burning through these supplies again, it could easily start coming back in any given region. So we're definitely not resting easy yet. And how did you get involved with the with the UK and the NHS? Was that them proactively reaching out to you, or how did that kind of kind of pass? So Flexport.org is a, our nonprofit group, but it's kind of embedded within our company, and we're seventeen hundred people in nine countries, and so we've got a London office that had um, our London head of London connected with someone at the NHS. Same thing happened in Amsterdam, connecting with with the Dutch government, and so we've just you know our team was proactively like seeking out. Hey, how can we help? We, we can. We'd love to be useful to you. And um, right. And people took us up on that. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you've been importing stuff from China for twenty years. Well, I started twenty years ago. Thankfully, I stopped having to to do that a few years even before I started Flexport. But I used to. Yeah. How old are you? Can I ask? I just turned forty. So forty minus twenty. 
So what were you doing at 20 importing stuff from China? Well, so I actually 22, let's say, so 18 years. Um, I was working for my <laughs> older my older brother, David, is a serial entrepreneur, best entrepreneur I know, my role model. And um, he ran a business buying motorcycles in China and selling them in the United States on eBay and then through a what? network of live car auctions and stuff. And so I was his, initially I started doing customer service for them and then Rose up. I mean, it was a small operation, but I kind of did a little bit of everything. Did you have a headset and the whole deal? Like, you know, 1-800-Chinese-Motorcycle? Yeah, basically. I answered the phone all day. A lot of spare parts problems and everything. But then I took over. I I actually lived lived in China for a couple of years, uh, working on supply chain for that business, running sort of the operations on that side of the world. So yeah, a lot of experience visiting Chinese factories, doing sourcing, Enough to be dangerous anyways. I can, uh, I, I can get around. <laughs> and so you did that. And then so how did you end up doing Flexport? I mean, how did you kind of end up starting this or why? Well, I think the, the initial idea was sort of stuff, stuff that I saw there, which was, you know, we're running a, a decent sized business in that motorcycles business. It probably did like $100 million in sales. and $100 million of Chinese motorcycles? Uh, it had other products too, but yeah, I mean, it was a decent sized business. And then- what? Sorry, sorry, just on the Chinese motorcycles thing. Yeah. What's the brand name? We were called uh, KPX. KPX. Yeah, the P is for Peterson and uh, the K is for Kanko. We made it up. Uh, right, so that was the brand of the motorcycle. So they're Chinese made, but you brand it. That was our own brand. They were actually made by a couple of companies. One was uh, Zhongshan. I haven't kept up with Zhongshan. They made the best motorcycles that we bought. And the other one was uh, Jili, which is the car company that bought Volvo a few years ago. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And we were their first dealer in the U.S. Wow. Two dudes in their 20s was their first dealer in the U.S. Uh, three. We had Kanko, who was the K in KPX, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was, um, you know, we, we, we weren't, I don't think we were like a sanctioned dealer. We were just buying their stuff and importing it and selling it. No. <laughs> right, 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 right. But what, what we learned in that process of building that business is one, I mean, business is hard. I have so much empathy for our customers, like standing out in a very crowded marketplace, building high quality products, dealing with quality assurance, like scaling, everything that, that goes into that is so hard. Yeah. But then even when we solved those problems, like you would think you solved that problem, you figured out pricing so that you're marking the stuff up enough that you should make. And yet somehow you still struggled to make money. You would have, um, first of all, logistics was a real nightmare. Getting it delivered, the paperwork, compliance, motorcycles is a particularly tough one. You got DOT, EPA, all kinds of regulatory bodies in the US and I'm, I'm sure uh, similar in Europe and probably harder actually. And then you lay on top of that financing. If you don't deliver, if you don't, you only get seven days free when you pick up a container at the port. On average, I think we're sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's five, whatever, but you only get a, free, a few free days at the port after which mm. you start racking up crazy fees. And if you, the reason that you are not able to pick your goods up is that you haven't paid for them yet because you don't have any money, you're now in a death spiral, right? And so like, yep. these are just like classic problems of growing a business and it's not intuitive, but the faster you grow your business, the more cash you need because you're constantly buying more products. And so we, we lived all those pains, but I looked at it and go, hey, this shouldn't be that hard. Like, where's the easy button for global trade? Where's this platform? And the bigger you get, the harder this problem is because it's so many shipments, so much complexity, so many factories, so many SKUs. And so you get big companies having to create whole bureaucratic shipping departments, compliance teams to manage all this data, to collaborate with each other. 
and those human systems don't scale very well. Like suddenly you're having to double the number of people every time yeah. it improves the shipments by 1.5. So that was the idea for Flexport is like, couldn't we build a technology platform that connects all these parties in, in the same place on the platform, makes it easy for them to see where's their stuff, when is it gonna arrive, how to ship it, how much is it gonna cost? What are my options for shipping the thing? What other things should I think about? Insurance, customs clearance, all of those uh, services that you need to do global trade. And was anybody trying to do all of that before you were doing it? Or was it kind of more disparate pieces of the puzzle? Well, I think the, we're a class of business called a freight forwarding. And a freight forwarder, they've been around since time immemorial. I mean, really yeah. going way, way back. Uh, Hammurabi's code has seven laws about shipping. I mean, this is a really ancient industry. Um, what's different that we're bringing to the market is using software to make the experience better. User experience, reporting and analytics connecting people, giving you visibility, track and trace, like where's my stuff, using global positioning system, using all the, the tech that's available today, um, structuring the data, making it reusable, lowering everybody's costs. It's really, I, I often joke, it should be, instead of called freight forwarding, it should be freight email forwarding because it's usually just people pushing paper around yeah. the world and making phone calls and stuff. And when did you start the company? Officially, it became my full-time job in 2013. So it's been about seven years. When you basically left KPX. Uh, I left KPX a few years before that. I did something in between. Ran a, a business called Import Genius that uh, provides data on imports and exports. So I've been in the in this space where tech meets global trade, the internet meets global trade for, for a long time. And how was the pitch received when you went, I presume you went up and down Sand Hill Road with your, uh, with your PowerPoint? I have done so several times uh, <laughs> over the years. And it's always a bad idea. And how was it received that first go around in 2013? The first pass was quite good and I didn't have to do that. The very, you know, that's why I was joking kind of when I say always a bad idea. Ideally, you're in a good place and the investors come to you and you just, you know, take take one of the offers that you get. And our our very first pass, because the the previous company, Import Genius, was quite successful, still is quite a good business. And did you start that company or did you? My brother and I started that business. Yeah, with, this, with Kenko, the three of us started that one. Oh, okay. And so that business is quite successful as a software data as a service platform business. Uh, investors liked it. They knew about it. And they, um, when I said I was going to start this new company, people were like more backing me than the idea in the beginning, I think. Although the idea was good. It was like, good idea, good founder. Let's yeah. Give it a shot. Later rounds of funding have been, you know, we've raised $1.35 billion so far. Uh, so I will definitely not come on here and complain about how hard it is to fundraise, but even we had had our problems, I assure you. And how many are you on like Series Q now or how many? Series, uh, series D was the last one. D is in Right, dog. right, right. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How is it that you ended up starting so many companies? Are, you, are, you, are your parents entrepreneurs or how, where does this kind of come from? Actually, yes. My uh, mom is a quite a successful entrepreneur. She sold two companies and uh, my dad... Oh. He's a computer programmer and uh, he worked for my mom. Uh, he was a programmer on her at her company. So he's, um, we're kind of a family of entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever planned it that way. I thought I just couldn't get a job because I graduated during a recession and my brother was the only person that would hire me. But as it turns <laughs> out, I, I give my brother all the credit. He's, he's the one that my mom probably taught me a lot to be an entrepreneur, like kind of subconsciously, whereas my brother very actively was like training me to, to do business. What were your mom's companies? One is called Technical Assessment Systems, and the other one is uh, Novagen Sciences. She's a biochemist. It's now part of Exponent, which is a publicly traded company that does. Okay. Um, it's a cool company, food and chemicals. Wow. Okay. And so now you're 1,700 people. We are, yeah. I just looked at it today, 1,738. And in terms of, so you've been doing this since 2013. I presume you haven't seen anything like what you've seen over the last, call it since the turn of the turn of the year in terms of the ups and downs of trade or maybe that's maybe you have we of course not i mean this has been a crazy the pandemic's probably once hopefully once in a generation maybe once in a lifetime type of a disruption but uh but i actually think flexboard's done well in part because our market has been so volatile since we started it's been quite chaotic i mean we started in 2013 2014 was easy going we were barely a business at that point just building some tech 2015 you had a port strike on the West coast of the United States and no containers mm. could be delivered for three months. 2016, you had this huge glut of capacity and the price of an ocean container went from, you could ship from Shenzhen, China to Rotterdam. You could ship a container for 300 us dollars. It's like, it would cost you more to put the container in mini storage than just to sail it across the world. You know, it's crazy when the price goes that cheap. It's not, uh, it creates a lot of second and third order effects. Then 2017, Trump got elected and you had trade wars and tariffs all through 17, 18, 19, and then 20s, COVID. So like, I think our company was kind of battle tested. Like we're used to chaos. Every time Trump would launch a new tariff within five minutes, we're figuring out, okay, here are the customers that are going to be affected. Within an hour, we've got those, their account managers have the names of every customer to call. And here's like the dollar amount. Here's like, let's start strategizing and reaching out. So like we kind of built this a bit of a war room exercise mentality for trial by fire over the last few years. And those, especially since Trump's been around and, and the, at least the bellicose language in terms of trade, has that translated into like huge disruptions? Because I, I read stories here and there about, you know, sector X or, you know, a farmer over here or what have you. But I don't have a sense of whether that has what the kind of the the overall effect has been, at least from what you guys have seen. Um, it's it's pretty disruptive. Now, a lot of it's going to be longer term. It takes a while to play out. If you raise the price twenty five percent, most companies will not go bankrupt because their wholesale costs went up twenty five percent. 
but it, they're definitely going to start thinking about where do they produce and do they want to keep producing in China or can they find another supplier in a different country that doesn't have that problem. But you don't do that overnight. You know, you start, you can start thinking about it overnight, but it, even if you make the change, it might take you a year or two. We have seen quite a bit of shift of volume uh, towards Southeast Asia, towards India, Latin America. A lot of these other regions are growing quite fast. Limited number of stories were like, oh, this company had to just shut down altogether. Yeah. Usually there's something else wrong with the business if that happened on, on this. But certainly it increased like the average tariff that is paid really um, went up substantially towards, in the, it's now in the double digits. It used to be in the, you know, less than 2%. Now it's something like, yeah, definitely double digits percent tariffs being paid. We paid a billion dollars to the U.S. government last year on behalf of our customers of taxes. And um, our business to Europe is about 10% of our business. So probably a little lower tariff. You, have, you haven't had these right. tariff hikes that we've had. But And so how do you guys make money? We make money transactionally. So every time you ship something, we just charge a fee for that. And our goal is to be competitive with similar offerings, at least in terms of freight offerings and serv trade services with a much better user experience through technology. So the tech is free and uh, you make money off freight just like another freight forwarder. And so, yeah, I, I like that business because the, the thing is that every time we get a, an importer in the United States, in the UK, around the world, they're on average bringing four of their suppliers to the platform. And right. we, so, we, you know, we were often pushed by different people that, hey, you should be a SaaS business, software as a service, sell subscriptions to the platform. And like, Actually, I, I've done that business and I really like it. I, I like making money through software because you don't have any marginal costs and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But the problem is if I do that and you don't sign up and therefore you don't invite your four factories, I've just made my platform worse off. Like I want to get everybody on here trading. Uh, and that's that's what we're going for is like build this network. Because the first time you ship from a factory, it's kind of hard. Like I got to train that factory. I got to send a team in China or wherever in the world, right. onboard them, teach them how to use it. But the second time you ship from that same company, it's like really easy and fast. So that's, that's where we're really investing a lot is like, how do we get more companies on? Uh, and then we just make money transactionally like any other freight company. Got you. What was your worst day of work? My worst day, uh, it's always going to be some personal people drama probably, but um, probably on a, on a pretty big level, like with COVID, we had to lay off. Wasn't too many people. It was like, 50 people or so because uh, we closed all of our offices. So office managers, we shut down. We used to have a pretty big events marketing team, did a big customer mm. conference, did like local events all the time. They were really successful and great, but we're not doing those things. So we had a, it's really tough when you like have good people who have done great work and you have to tell them in the midst of something like this that like, I sorry, but I have to do that. I have to make a decision that's, pretty crappy. So that was probably my worst day at work was having to do that a couple of months ago. And you have to do all that via Zoom, presumably, which is exactly. not great. Exactly. We weren't the first company to go. So we didn't make the mistake of uh, doing everybody all at once on one big Zoom call. I, I read about some of the companies that did that. It's yeah. Pretty, pretty boneheaded. And just on that point around closing offices and stuff, you know, kind of, I was joking at the beginning about how like, you know, everybody's leaving. Everybody's leaving San Francisco. It's the end of San Francisco, which, you know, you could write the same story in one form or another every six months or a year. But do you get a sense that this time is different, that people are leaving or that as someone who with a lot of employees, 
that people have said, oh, well, actually, Zoom is quite useful. I can I can do this job from elsewhere. I can let my people do this job from elsewhere. Do you see this kind of atomization of work and the workforce being a, a thing? Yeah, people are, I don't know if people are leaving. People love talking about leaving, but that's always been exactly. true in San Francisco. Yes. Like, it's their yes. favorite thing to do. But then all it takes is like drive across the bridge to the Marin Headlands and you'll be like, why would I live somewhere else? It's pretty beautiful here. Yeah. But it's very, very expensive. So if these people leave, like new people will, hopefully the rents will come down and new people will come, I'm sure. So yeah. it's not like San Francisco is going away. As for the second part about the question about like atomization of work or people being able to work from anywhere, for sure. And it's awesome. And I think you're going to see a lot more flexibility. And we're, we're talking about this every day. I'm trying to make it not a huge distraction because everyone likes to talk about real estate and where they, where they work and stuff. But um, we're definitely going to give people a lot more freedom to work where they want to. And I think offices will be more around collaboration, planning, getting together than it is like, oh, everybody sits in a row of desks every day and, and grinds together. I think you're going to see that that most people don't need that, don't benefit from it. And so does that mean you would be closing? Because I was talking to somebody who's like, well, offices will come be, be more like cafes or kind of cool collaboration spaces where you get together once every whatever to work on something that everybody needs to be together to work on. But otherwise, everybody can be where they need to be. I mean, like as of right now, we haven't made any hard decisions we haven't made any real decisions on the thing because it's like we're talking about a post-COVID world and we don't yeah. live in that world yet and don't know when we're <laughs> going to get there. So it's like I'm trying to have people not be too distracted because the reality is I, I don't we're not going to make anybody go to an office until they feel safe personally. And my wife is pregnant and she does not want me getting COVID Mm-mm. while she's pregnant like that. So she's like, well, you're not going to the office. And I agree. Right. So if I yeah. won't do it myself, it's very hard for me to tell other people they need to go to the office. So for the moment, we're sort of like, Hey, wait and see, deal with the uncertainty. I think there's a certain amount of maturity needed as a company and leadership to be able to go, we just don't know. And like, that's okay. Not a lot of people want answers. And so it's probably not good enough for everyone at Flexport, but uh, that's my honest statement is like, I don't know. And we're just going to be okay with that for now. Lastly, an important question. Um, have you had any direct dealings with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because he was a funder of your uh, flexport.org uh, <laughs> drive for PPE. Only, um, oh, no, only via uh, his chief of staff's wife works at Flexport. So there's like oh, messages see. being relayed through through her and him. But unfortunately, and I, no, I have not met his uh, donkey and his mini horse, unfortunately. I'm <laughs> very eager to do so. Is there anything else you think is worth kind of uh, covering off? So I think one of the things that this, this pandemic has taught us is that like plan for the unimaginable. Uh, I, what's one of our core principles here, like is we're going to invest in what's never happened before and keep doing your thing and bringing your vision to life. But you also have to hedge for regression to the mean, like things are going to go back to the way they kind of normally are most of the time. And then plan for the unimaginable, like crazy stuff's going to happen. And we've operated with that for quite some time. So in April of 2019, I I wrote an essay elucidating those principles and saying that we why we'd raised a billion dollars because our board only wanted us to raise $250 million our employees were like, why did we just sell a third of the company? We're so at this stage of the business, like it's kind of crazy to take on that much money. And my core point was like, I don't know on what timeline we're going to be successful. Right. Let's just make sure we're alive forever. And we we were working through all kinds of things like trade wars. And we've just seen so many different panics in our market and up volatility. I was like, I want to just be able to ride out anything that the world throws at us. So we... We raised that. And I think that that's a lesson that like 
you know, obviously now is probably not a great time to go and solve for black swans if it's already hit us. But recognizing that, hey, just because you had one doesn't mean it's diminished the odds of the next one. And people should prepare for that. And you should be more conservative in your financial modeling. You should keep more inventory if you're in a PPE yeah. business. Like, let's have some stockpiles. Like, I think too many of us got used to this, like, just in time everything, just in time fundraising, just in time supply chains. Just, just in time is great as long as you have a stockpile to ride out. Like, if you're building a model that's based on a normal distribution curve, it's probably going to turn out ugly for you at some point. Whereas if you build it off of like, hey, let's have some redundancy in the system and make sure we're not going to have these collapses and it'll do you well. Yeah, no, people's memories are short. We had on the podcast a few weeks ago, a guy from Johns Hopkins talking about coronavirus and he's like, look, this is going to be around for a while. And he's like, you're just going to have to, life is going to be about managing risk. And like every time you step out of the door, there is this thing kind of looming that may or may not affect you you may not get may or may not get sick etc and he's like previous generations dealt with this whether it was polio or other things where it was just like it's just a kind of a risk that was part of daily life for most people but we've kind of forgotten that yeah and now we have social media to scare the hell out of ourselves and like you know go get exactly. these kind of collective uh everybody's getting scared together which is a <laughs> I know. and when you raised that billion was it was that a difficult who was it a harder sell for the employees or for the other investors who are like, Oh, I'm going to get diluted unless I, you know, dip into my pocket again or how, you know, what were the dynamics there? Um, well, definitely the other investors, employees were not a democracy. So I didn't, I didn't put it to them as a, do you want to do yeah. this or not? It was more after the fact for, for the vast majority of the employees. Yeah. But, uh, but our board had to approve it. They trust me. They, they saw the logic. I explained to them why, but they're, they definitely, you know, they wanted us to raise a smaller amount let's say. And uh, it wasn't ever really a contention, but they, they very strongly uh, felt, but they also deferred to me because they believe in uh, trusting the founder's judgment. So, Have you had any conversations since the proverbial hit the fan for the world where they're like, good call? Oh, I bring it up every time I see them, like several times during the conversation. <laughs> I, just As you them, should. I just call them out of the blue to see how things are going and then remind them that. But I always tell them, you know, past past performance does not equal future results. So don't get, you know, don't, I got I got smart once, but that doesn't mean everything else I do is going to be smart. That kind of caution was that bred of any experience you had at KPX or Import Genius? Probably not. Both those companies were bootstrapped and like profitable and generated cash and kind of self-sustaining. And I, I don't think we were any kind of financial engineers. I would say it's I love history and like I read read so many books about financial history and I really like that. Um, it's actually a really cool YouTube video. Not, uh, Niles Ferguson. Is that how you say mm -hmm. his name? That, um, Niall Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he has this really cool, um, ascent of money and it's on YouTube, like the whole, it's a BBC special. And I was watching that and like seeing the whole history of financial markets and bubbles and these things. And like, I never believe in predicting if we're in a bubble or anything like that. I don't know, Yeah. but I could see like, it's pretty rare to have, this kind of money being thrown around and the idea that someone was offering me a billion dollars. I didn't want to be the idiot who said no to that. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> on some level, my thinking was pretty simple. I could talk about black swans, but I couldn't do the math for it. I was just kind of on a simple level. This is a, this is a weird moment. And so some appreciation of history can help with these things, right? Cause if you were just caught up in the day to day, week to week, like 
uh, of venture capital in Silicon Valley, then that seems normal. Oh yeah, it's a billion dollars. Yeah. Like, oh, it's not, you know, the terms aren't good. You should negotiate this. And like, whereas if you look at like a 5,000 year view of financial markets, you're like, yeah, that's crazy. You should definitely just sign the term sheet quick. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And who, who are the investors in that round? Um, so SoftBank led the round. Uh, That's what and I then, thought. I thought it was SoftBank. Yeah, it's a yeah. SoftBank. There's kind of the only people that could write a check that big. Um, and then the other big investors, well, all of our existing investors, pretty much all the big ones invested. And then um, SF Express, which is the FedEx of China. I don't know if they like to be called that, but that's how I think of them. They're kind of like the parcel dominant parcel player in China. So they're our second biggest investor actually after SoftBank. And that's pretty important for us. Like China operations, obviously global trade centered on China. We want to have, they're a really well-run company. We Our skills really complement each other. They're not very global and they don't do freight. And we're not, I, I can speak Chinese okay, but we're not really, and we have 300 Chinese employees, but we're not really a Chinese company. Uh, and we yeah. don't do parcels, which is like small package. So it's like a, a good match and uh, became friendly with the CEO there over the, over the years and managed to kind of negotiate that deal too. And have SoftBank's very public issues had any impact on you or, you know, because they're obviously under pressure to do stuff with their portfolio. Has that trickled down to you at all? Nothing like in a negative way other than like having to answer lots of questions about it. I've had really great relationships with SoftBank, with all the people there, and they've been really supportive and they've always like pushed us to grow and be aggressive. And like they've toned that back a tiny bit, but I think it's just in their nature. They want us to grow and go after things and be the discounter and lower prices. And I was already pushing on that being like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to just go out here and subsidize everybody's ocean freight in the world. Like we're going to kind of uh, moderate. I like that strategy. I just didn't think I had quite enough balance sheet to do it. Yeah. And I didn't want to raise even more money. So there were some things like that over the years where we disagree slightly, but even that is like, that's just normal business. Right. So. Yeah. Well, look, it sounds like you've got your, um, your hands full, especially how, when is your baby due? Uh, September 19th, a couple more months. Do you enjoy sleep? I do. You have kids, I take it. Yeah, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so I'm just, uh, is this your first one? My first one. Okay, yeah, well, just rest <laughs> up, rest <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to get noise canceling everything, I don't know. Yeah. Invest in a good sound machine and uh, take naps where you can get them. I'm just so excited about the whole thing. So, Yeah, it'll be awesome. It's awesome. It is great. It's the best thing ever. It's also the most tiring thing ever all at once. But anyhow, well, look, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, good luck with it all. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Danny. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Ryan for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And for, of course, giving the pod a rating and review, which, of course, you know. I know you've already done it, so thanks again. And I'll be back next week. In the meantime, as usual, be writing loads of stuff in the Sunday Times this weekend, looking at TikTok, of course, and a whole bunch of other stuff going on in the world, wide world of technology. So you can find me there at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.
As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.